Hey, Warren. Hey, Kay. Do you know what time it is? Is it time to thank our favorite people in the whole world? Heck yeah. Today, we would like to thank our stage crew sponsor, Jasmine Wu, and our producer circle sponsors, Bianucci and Reagan, who will now be joined by Taylor Brandt. Thank you guys so much for all of your support on our show. We really appreciate it. Today, I want to promote another great Black podcast called Black History Buff. This is an amazing history podcast that tells about parts of Black history that aren't often covered in your average history class. Learn about people like Coretta Scott King, Yasuke, the Forgotten Black Samurai, Cafe Williams, the Buffalo Soldier, and more. This show is perfect for all ages and is one of our favorite history podcasts overall. Best yet, check out his website, blackhistorybuff.com, where you can learn even more about our history. Check out Black History Buff on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and all major podcatchers. Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. I'm musically challenged. Well, Warren, now that you've had a very, very, very brief introduction to just two forms of the many, many, many forms of performance from Africa, let's jump to what was going on in America. Oh boy. Yeah. I'm sure it's positive and and just full of good happy stuff. So full disclosure, this was the hardest episode to write, so yeah, yeah but I promise it's not going to be nearly uh, well. No, I can't promise it's not going to be nearly as brutal. Don't make any promises <laughs> when it comes to If anything, sad things. we're going to be focusing less on white people's discrimination in future episodes, but this one we need to have the background for what was happening in America. So most of the material from this episode is going to come from two really amazing books. They're called Black Broadway by Stuart F. Lane and Black Theater USA plays by African Americans, the early period. Uh, 1847 to 1938. So, uh, let's get going. And that book was uh, by James V. Hatch and Ted Schein. So, we know about the slave trade um, and that Africans were taken from Africa to America to work as slaves. It was the most brutal crossing over and then brutal dehumanization in America. So we're not going to focus on that with this episode, just because we are a theater podcast. We're trying to focus on the theater aspect of things, but just remember that in the back of your mind, like I always do, unfortunately. I've never forgotten it. Yeah. Um, it's especially because it still affects people today and the policies enacted during these times affects people today. There's my soapbox. 
I'll probably get on it again. <laughs> so, starting as early as the 1790s, minstrel shows where white people performed in blackface started to become a thing. Blackface, as we know it, however, came about in the 1820s. This is when Thomas Dartmouth Daddy Rice, who was a white dude, created the character Jim Crow. Oh. Yes, that is where this comes from. Ah. Uh. This is where the names for the laws that we'll talk about in a couple of episodes is going to come from. He used burned cork to darken his face, did an exaggerated black dialect, and did exaggerated dances as he dressed in ragged clothing. When he wasn't dressed as Jim Crow, he would live in wealth and comfort, much like other white people who performed this way did. So whenever you see something where someone's upset because somebody darkened their skin to dress as another person, it harkens back to this because, again, you're putting on a costume, performing, doesn't really matter, like, what you're doing in that performance, quite honestly. You're able to take that off at the end of the day. And make some money! And make some money or whatever off of it. That is why blackface, that's the very short definition without me getting into a rant that's probably riddled with cursing on why blackface is bad. And it starts here. So, this portrayal became a derogatory term for black men and became ingrained in the white American subconscious. Jim Crow soon became one of several stock characters for these minstrel shows. There was Mr. Tambo, who was the musician. Then, Zip Coon. Zip Coon was supposed to be the one who was, like, dressing nice and looking ridiculous in wealthy clothes, and he was supposed to be the inspiration for what you would call the quote-unquote uppity negro trope. <laughs> yeah, that's where that one comes from. Good old Zip. Mm-hmm. So, the reason that this got super popular, other than racism and dehumanizing of black people was because of the fact that theater then, as now, was inaccessible for the lower class who needed to have something to distract themselves from their horrible lives. Because being lower class, as we both know, sucks. <laughs> but you needed a distraction, and that was their distraction at this time. They didn't have Netflix. Correct. <laughs> so, um... They, they went to these minstrel shows where there were crass jokes and sketches about how, oh, slave life isn't bad. It's funny. We're all having fun. We're all just having a good time. We're all having time. a great time being human beings that are being owned by other human beings. Um, it's super great working for free. Gosh. So these shows didn't stop after the Civil War. And we'll probably talk more about that when we get to the 1900s with folks like Eddie Cantor and Al Jolson and stuff. So you had the Jim Crow shows that were gaining a lot of popularity. You had the Virginia Minstrels with Dan Emmett, who is the writer of the song Dixie. In New York, by the way. This is not in the South. This is in New York. 
And this is the group where you get the dark face and the bright red lips. And they basically pretended to be free blacks and slaves, and they were wildly successful. Then you have another group, and this group tried to be more classy about their racism. This was the group called the Ethiopian Serenaders. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They tried not to do stereotypes, even though blackface, and would often perform classical music instead of relying on crass humor. Americans didn't like it because they wanted the crass humor of Jim Crow and the Virginia minstrels, but Europeans liked the Ethiopian serenaders. Uh, you, Europeans at this time didn't really like the body humor that was being done by these other shows, and in fact, the Virginia minstrels tried to do a tour in England in 1843, and it was so poorly received that they broke up. Oh, well. Yeah. Them's the breaks, I guess. Um, and this is going to kind of be a theme where Europe is a better place for black performers than America. Um, and we'll get to that with the main subject of the first play that we're going to cover. And that'll be our next episode. Now, this was also the only theater outlet for black people at this time. Um, so the only theater outlet was not actually being allowed to play characters in theater. Well, we're gonna get there. So, they were actually sometimes the biggest part of the audience in some areas. So, black people going to shows to see white people dressed up as black people making fun of them. Yes, and Black Broadway has a couple of theories on why they did this. Some was that it was like, oh, well, you're going there and you're going to just laugh at how absurdly they're portraying you or because these are songs that we know and these are dances that while it's exaggerated we know we developed these songs and dances so kind of that nostalgia factor a little bit well not even nostalgia just sort of the we know this okay we'll watch it um and then of course there's the whole like, you don't have a lot of money, you want to have an outlet, you want to go see something, this is the only thing you can go see in a lot of areas. This, unfortunately, was also a lot of white people's first exposure to black people. Were these caricatures? Yes. These impressions? This is why you have this long, long, long history of this terrible portrayal of black people in advertising, movies, cartoons, Bugs Bunny and stuff. That's related to this and the fact that this was the first time a lot of people had seen a black person, in quotes. <laughs> so what I'm gathering from this early part of your presentation is that people back then were just as stupid as people now and when they see something on stage slash tv they go oh that must be real yes this is why i kind of make a big deal about representation honestly is that it's like as a bisexual non-binary black person i want to have good representation of myself not only for me to see but for other people to see as well. And it's why I got so mad when I first saw Rocky Horror Picture Show. Understandable. So there's, there's that. Um, 
this was also what black actors had as an option. This was the only way they could perform for a brief period. But see, that doesn't... Uh, but they're... But you're saying that was the only option they had to perform, but it was white people doing blackface that were performing. So, we're going to get to that with a person who actually uh, became so successful that he invented three forms of dance by being a black man portraying a white man <laughs> in blackface. Wait, 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 wait. My brain is imploding. He was a black man portraying a white man who was doing blackface. Yes. So did he have three layers of paint? Like, what's... No, so he would just paint in the exaggerated style to look like he was in blackface even though he was black. Because, I mean, when you bring the person on, you're thinking, oh, this is a white guy in blackface. It's kind of like the movie Bamboozled, which... I haven't seen. Yeah, you haven't seen, and any younger listeners should wait to see it. I saw it way too young. Because <laughs> it's just racist garbage? <laughs> well, it's it's depressing, because it's Spike Lee, and oh, Spike it's, Lee. it's where he... It, the main character creates this show that's basically a minstrel show in modern times, and... It becomes wildly successful with white people, which was not what he wanted, yeah. and it it ends really depressingly. Um, someday we'll see it. Is that a threat? <sighs> I just, I I do not look forward to ever seeing it again, but I know that it will eventually happen. So, this person that we're going to talk about is William Henry Lane. He was born a free black child around 1825 in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, his early life isn't super well documented, and he had actually faded into obscurity after his death until a story was published in 1947, and by that point they were starting to uncover stuff written by people that you might know, like uh, Charles Dickens, and uh, he had been writing about him in this little thing called American Notes, and, uh, this little guy, uh, you might know him, P.T. Barnum. Of, uh, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey? Mm-hmm. In fact, Barnum had him in his troupe, and he called him something that I am not going to say because that word sets me off. Uh, and, yeah, um... It's one of the many reasons that I don't like P.T. Barnum, and we're going to get into more of why I hate him in a minute. Um, but what we do know about Lane was that he was made up to look like a white man in blackface, because that was the only way he could perform. So stupid. We think he was hired by Barnum in 1841 and replaced his previous blackface performer, who was, <laughs> who was a white Irishman named John Diamond. In fact, uh, Lane performed as John Diamond during this time, and he didn't perform under his own name, didn't perform under the name that he's most famous for performing under, which is Master Juba, until after his time with P.T. Barnum. So Dickens saw him performing, and he uh, writes about him in American Notes. This is after the time that Master Juba has been performing with P.T. Barnum. He says, 
the corpulent black fiddler and his friend who plays the tambourine stamp upon the boarding of a small raised orchestra in which they sit and play a lively measure. Five or six couples come on the, upon the floor, marshaled by a lively young negro who is the wit of the assembly and the greatest dancer known. He never leaves off making queer faces and is the delight of all the rest who grin from ear to ear incessantly. But the dance continues, every gentleman as long as he likes, to the opposite lady, and the opposite lady to him, and all are so long about it that the sport begins to languish when suddenly the lively hero dashes into the rescue. Instantly, the fiddler grins and goes at it tooth and nail. There is a new energy in the tambourine, new laughter in the dancers, new smiles in the landlady, new confidence in the landlord, new brightness in the very candles. Singles shuffle, double shuffle, cross and cut, snapping his fingers, rolling his eyes, turning his knees, presenting the back of his legs in front, spinning around on his toes and heels like nothing but the man's fingers on the tambourine, dancing with two left legs, two right legs, two wooden legs, two wire legs, two spring legs, all sorts of legs and no legs. What is this to him? And... In what walk of life, or dance of life, does man ever get such stimulating applause as thunders about him, when, having danced his partner off her feet and himself too, he finishes by leaping gloriously onto the bar counter and calling for something to drink with the chuckle of a million counterfeit Jim Crows in one imitatable sound that was quite the description of that man dancing and you're gonna find a common theme with that because people had a really hard time describing how he danced because <laughs> was he was he noodly appendaged he was noodly appendaged and not at the same time so he was just so incredibly skilled that he had this great physical comedy about the way that he was able to dance, but he had such dexterity and athleticism that he could do these impressive feats, like just leaping up onto the bar stool. Yeah. But at the same time, like, it's just, I'm listening to you read that. I'm doing my best to try and picture it in my mind, and I get, like, a Looney Tunes scenario. Like... So I'll describe some more other accounts. Um, now, to, to add to this... There is no footage of him that exists dancing because 1840s. I was going to say, I was like, yeah. So we have to rely on recreations, which looking into the YouTube comments on some, because I was at first going to show you, but a lot of the commenters are like, no, this is just modern styles merged with Irish step dancing. Oh, thank God. I thought, okay, as soon as you said looking into the comments, I immediately... No, no, no. This is, this is just <laughs> dance experts going... Well, now you see, this looks much so much more better. like Irish step dancing oh. than it does what Master Juba could do. So, well, just hey, um, that's okay. Yeah, so much no. better than what I was worried it would be. <laughs> yeah, no, um, but I don't know how authentic it is. And then we have to also rely on accounts from critics and other people who would have seen him, aka white people. So, 
I'm just gonna give you a few more, um, things about, uh, about Master Juba that were said about him during this time. Before we move on to another piece of theater that you need to have as a background that I just, rawr, I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay. But we'll, we'll persevere. All right. So the Manchester Courier said, The dancers he introduced were distinguished for eccentricity, rapidity of motion, and the accuracy of time kept. They approximated, in some respects, to those wild dances that may be witnessed sometimes in the remoter parts of the Highlands, including the sword dance, as they're known, besides having the same idea of the clanking of clanking the heels as pervades the polka. But it is not the office of the legs alone to do this. The head, the arms, the body generally take full share of duty and assume such extraordinary positions that only a being possessed of the power of Proteus could calculate upon taking. Are you kind of seeing what kind of dance this might have spawned yet? Yes, I think I am, uh, because it sounds like tap. Yes, it does. But it also sounds like tap on, I was going to say tap on crack, but uh, I'm getting images of Cosmo Brown from Singing in the Rain. Yes. Plus tap dance, but just like lots of noodly physical comedy yeah. during the dance. So he basically is creating tap dance, step dance, not Irish step dance, but a different kind of step dance, and jazz dance. Oh. He is creating three different dances in this. Like this is the progenitor of all three. So I'll do one more that the Manchester Examiner says uh, that I really liked. Surely he cannot be flesh and blood, but some more subtle substance. <laughs> or how could he turn and twine and twist and twirl and hop and jump and kick and throw his feet almost with a velocity that makes one think they are playing hide-and-seek with a flash of lightning? Heels or toes, on feet or on knees, on the ground or off, it is all the same to Juba. His limbs move as if they were stuffed with electric wires. So this guy is... Fit is all heck and is just throwing and leaping and jumping and twisting and kicking and it almost sounds like when he's talking about doing the leaping and stuff that uh because i guess i haven't seen enough jazz dance to know mm -hmm. if they do a lot of that because it almost sounds a little bit like ballet too which ballet leads into it into jazz dance so what so ah okay i don't want to get too off track because <laughs> i'm I was about to launch into how different dance forms are this is related to each other. Uh, okay, back to my notes, back to my notes. So, like I said, he found he was the father of tap dancing, step dancing, and jazz dance. But he passed away in February of 1854, allegedly. The mm. official date being February 3rd, 1854, but this is the 1800s record keeping. It's not good at this time, and mm -hmm. he's black. So I'm going to say this, too, because the last actual record of him is in 1851. And according to dance historian Marion Hannah Winter, he actually died in 1852 in London, 
which this is most likely based off of something that historian T. Alston Brown said. He said, Juba married too late, and a white woman besides, and died early and miser miserably. In a note addressed to Charlie White, Juba informed him that when next he should be seen by him, he would be riding in his own carriage. It has been said that in 1852, his skeleton, without the carriage, was on exhibition at the Surrey Music Hall in Sheffield, England. Hmm. Regardless, he was only in his late 20s when he died. So, uh, okay. Sorry, my brain has questions. Um, yes. Do we know for a f so we don't know for a fact that he died around that time. We know that he died between 1852 and 1854. So there's no alternate universe, alternate world where like he took the money he made and was like, I'm retiring early. I'm sneaking no. away to go live a happy life. And in fact, his dance style and his life on the road would have led to an early death uh, because he wouldn't have oh, had the dance best nutrition. Style. And, and he was he also was, punishing his body relentlessly. Yeah, because yeah, certain dance styles, and also this works with drumming, baseball, things like that, you have a very short time that you can do that, because after a while you're just punishing your body, and your body is breaking down from that. Who does that remind me of, Kay? I don't know. Who does that remind you of? I don't know. Should we ask your knee? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. And my shoulders because of the drubbing, which I will never give up. <laughs> so, before we move into the first black theater in America, I'm going to touch on the last form of theater that was really popular and also quote-unquote portrayed black people. <sighs> so, this next piece of theater was an adaptation of the second most popular book in antebellum America. Sorry, what is antebellum America? Before mean? Civil War. Oh. I so feel like I should have known that. This was an anti-slavery novel oh. written by abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe. And the book was very sympathetic in its portrayal of the main character, a slave named Tom, and showed the evils of slavery and how even the good masters weren't really all that great. I actually read it in high school and remembered going why is this the name for this type of person? And then... Wait, is, is this where Uncle Tom comes from? Yes, it is. This book is Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh -huh. If the theatrical performances had stayed closer to the book, maybe things would be different. But theatrical adaptations of, over, of Uncle Tom's Cabin overshadowed the book, and the name Uncle Tom became synonymous with a subservient, lazy black man who would do whatever the white man told him to do. This is because, guess what Tom shows basically were? Tom shows? As in these plays with Uncle Tom's cabin. I, I would assume blackface? Yep. They were basically minstrel shows. So they're just minstrel shows and they can't be like, we can't make these black people look human. We got to make them look, make them characters so that people don't mm -hmm. feel bad about the fact that they're subjugated. And this is where we're going to get into a few more stock stereotype characters, but I'll get to that in a second. 
So I'll do a quick history on these shows first, courtesy again of the Black Broadway book, which again, everyone should get. So the first adaptation was performed before the book was actually released, and it was put on as sort of a short filler show in between other shows, and it wasn't well received. And then shortly after the release, in August of 1852, they put it on again, and again people were like, eh. Then another longer and better received version was put on by George L. Aiken, and it was in six acts, it was wildly popular, it was closer to the book. Wow, a six-act show. Yeah. This was to the point where, by the late 1870s, over 50 different companies were putting on their own Tom shows. As in their own, not a recreation of Aiken's show. Just whatever... Just their own. Whatever they could bend over and just pull right out of their backside. Yes. The, remember when we covered Pirates of Penzance and how I said that copy laws, mm -hmm. copyright laws weren't really a thing mm -hmm. in the 1800s? Harriet Beecher Stowe got a taste of this when her book became adapted by folks who didn't share the same anti-slavery sentiments she did. It's going to be the worst thing ever. Looking at you, P.T. Barnum. Ugh. His first Tom show was put on at the same time as Aiken's. And while Aiken's was true to the book and had these abolitionist sentiments, Barnum's was like, oh, let's have him be happy and not offend the slave owners. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah, this... <laughs> ha, I'm so happy to be a slave. No, you're doing great, Massa. Here, let me give you some tips on how to really put your hip into that whip. I absolutely believe that Barnum would unironically say so much for the tolerant left. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. I he mean, just... Mm, this like, is why I have no desire to see the greatest showman. <laughs> sounds like he was he was a businessman back in the day mm -hmm. when there were no checks and boundaries to make sure that you weren't just killing your employees. Because, yeah. oh, they're lucky to have a job. Like, yeah. And then he... To add that, he was racist. <sighs> he called Master Juba... The N-word. <laughs> like, that just... It, like, he said it just casually. Because... Oh. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. It's okay. He's he's nice and toasty with Hitler, and yeah, it's four yeah. o'clock somewhere, and a pineapple is on its way. Yep. Okay, okay. So, these Tom shows were also where a lot of other stereotypes come from. Oh, boy. Such as the Mammy which, for those who don't know, is the older black woman who's maternal, and y you could say is the nursemaid to white children. The pickaninny, which are black children who are wild and unkempt. Think buckwheat, but worse. Ah, okay. And then Tom. Docile, stupid, submissive. Not at all like Tom in the book. Also... All these plays were mostly performed by white casts, so there's that. And I imagine the women were too, by mm -hmm. white guys, probably. Yep. So after all of this rage-inducing knowledge, let's go back to 1821 in New York City. 
So we'll, we'll go to the corner of Bleecker and Mercer, where a free black man named William Alexander Brown had just opened a 300-seat theater called the African Grove in New York City's Little Africa, cool. which is one of two non-existent black neighborhoods on Manhattan, as in non-existent anymore. The other was Seneca Village, which now is Central Park. Ah. They tore it down, claimed eminent domain, pushed everybody out, and built a park on it. And no one knew about it until 1992. But wow. they have a little plaque commemorating it now. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah, a nice little that's plaque. Nice they have a little plaque. Good lord. So, that heavy sigh was from our dog. <laughs> <laughs> she also... She also agrees that this is just uh, rage-inducing. She's also black. Yes. (laughs) Jeez. Oh, man. Okay, so... I'm sorry. I have to watch my language, so I've got to get some humor somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I've... As you've heard, I've been on the cusp of swearing multiple times in Mm -hmm. this episode. So, the whole Seneca Village thing can be an episode of BTB or Palm and Pitch. Just... They could cover it really well, uh, or especially actually Black History Buff, and I need to see if he's covered it yet. Because mm. if he hasn't, I think that he should. That would should. be right up his alley. Yeah. Um, so, <sighs> Brown was born in the West Indies, and he had been a ship steward until 1816 and had succeeded in something that was out of reach for most Black people in America at this time. He was able to buy a two-story house in Lower Manhattan, and in that house, he had a tea garden where he was able to host plays and poetry readings, along with serving ice cream and drinks to other black people. Because just because New York was in the North doesn't mean that it wasn't super racist. Black people were not allowed in ice cream parlors or a lot of other establishments at this time. His friend, actor James Hewlett, was the one who convinced him to move his performances from the tea garden to another house that was much bigger on the corner of Bleecker and Mercer. This house would become the aforementioned 300-seat African Grove Theater and is the first incarnation of this theater. The first play put on there was Richard III, which James Hewlett played Richard, and the show opened September 21st, 1821. This version is really interesting because according to Black Broadway, they had to cut some scenes because they only had, like, a few actors. But they added songs and dance, making it a musical. Oh, cool. I really, really wish that this version existed somewhere. Uh, This is George O'Dell's review in The National Advocate, and it's one of the few sources describing this play. Negroes resolved to get up a play and use the upper apartments of the African Grove for a performance of Richard III. A dapper, woolly-haired waiter at the City Hotel uh, impersonated the royal Plantagenet in robes made of discarded merino curtains of the ballroom. Owing to the smallness of the company, King Henry and the Duchess were played by one person and Lady Anne and Cattersby by another. Lady Anne, in Act 3, sang quite incongruously. Unfortunately, I don't think any produ- any versions of this production exist. But if 
someone were able to do a recreation of it, I would be all over that because I'm such a sucker for lost media. <laughs> so this troupe was able to mount other Shakespeare plays and branched out to other forms of theater in their short existence. Brown knew, however, that he had to branch out even further. Yes, black people finally had a theater to go to where they were represented on stage and weren't relegated to the farthest back seats or watching Tom shows or minstrel shows. But in order to succeed, he needed to bring in white theater goers. This proved to eventually be his undoing. Oh, no. So white folks did come to these shows because they were curious and they had their own little section in the back. <laughs> but they would mock the actors on stage and start to become disorderly to the point where the police were constantly called and raiding the place. Jeez. So Brown relocated the Grove to Houston Street, where white people again became an issue. And then he moved the theater to Prince Street, where he was actually assaulted and ended up having to hang a sign that said, Whites do not know how to behave at entertainments designed for ladies and gentlemen of color. That is awesome. There is a theory, and I would believe it, that these raucous groups of white theater goers were not entirely there just because of discrimination on their own end, but instead were sent by competing white theater owner Stephen Price of the nearby and much more successful Park Theater. Brown had kind of flexed on him and performed Richard III in the theater next to Park on the same evening that the Park was putting on Richard III. So Price sent over a group of white folks to start a riot at the African Grove's performance. According to Black Broadway, not only were actors physically assaulted, but someone cut down the chandelier and the costumes all got destroyed. Instead of arresting the white audience members who started this and were assaulting people, the black actors were arrested and Brown was prohibited from staging any more Shakespeare performances. Well, of course. I mean, that's what makes sense. This poor, innocent, white theater guy was just horribly, you know, uh, uh, discriminated against and, and made to look a fool by this black theater performer putting on a show the same day. It's like, mm -hmm. cause White superiority is so fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> a bit of good came out of this, though. Just a bit? Just a bit. Because <sighs> this led to the creation of another piece of lost media that I really, 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 really wish existed in more than just a quick summary of it. In 1823... Brown produced his first original play that was also the first original play written, produced, directed, and acted by black people. This play was the drama of King Shottaway, and it was about Joseph Chatoyer, or Satue. I think I pronounced that right. I may not have. Uh, he was a Garifuna chief, which the Garifuna are a mix of Africans and indigenous Arawak and Carib peoples on the island of St. Vincent. In 1795, he led a revolt against the British colonists on that island. Yes! He did not survive it, but this play is about him. James Hewlett, once again, 
came in to perform the lead, and the play, as well as the African Grove Theater at this point, was short-lived. It was a success, though. But once again, there were financial issues and ongoing harassment culminating in the burning of the now-defunct theater in 1826. Uh... But two black actors got their start in this first in this historic first black theater, paving the way for many others. Hewlett, of course, who performed one-man impersonations of white actors' performances of classic Shakespearean characters with great success through the 1820s, and he didn't do it in a mocking way. He legitimately was like, I'm going to do this just as well, if not better. And he did. Nice. And he actually would remembering what happened with the African Grove, he would sell tickets in advance because the people who would generally come in to cause problems would and be drunk, minute. yeah, they would do it at the last minute. But if one of those people would show up, he had a retort right back at them. Yeah? Yeah. So, awesome dude. But by the 1830s, he no longer had the same star power in New York, and his last performance was in Trinidad, where he performed Othello in 1839, and he died the next year. Uh. The other black actor who got his start at the African, African Grove and moved on to international fame was a young apprentice of Hewlett named Ira Aldridge. We'll get to talk about him in the next episode, where you'll get your first 1K performance, because I cannot <laughs> find any video of this one being performed. See, I'm actually happy about that, because then I get my own personal 1K you performance. You do. You get a personal 1K performance. So, yeah, there was my presentation. You're, you're very well researched, and... Totally only slightly depressing presentation. Yeah, this I'm not going to lie. This took over a week to write this just because every so often I would stop and go, I have to decompress. Like, I... It's constantly a punch to the heart. Yeah. Like, I don't know how some people like BTB do their shows that they do when it's like, oh, let me just read about depressing things all the time. I have no idea. I, I feel power to people being able to do that because... While I was doing this, I was getting flashbacks to the project that I did in the eighth grade that I'm pretty sure made my white teachers very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> because it was the, hey, this is how my people were portrayed in advertising throughout the years. Complete with, like, s signage and stuff going, yeah, y'all did this. Hey, y'all still kind of do this. Man. So it was, it was... Yeah. It didn't go away 100%. It just changed forms. Exactly. And as we continue this journey, there will be moments that will be rage-inducing, but that's just part of... This I you, yeah. this whole episode was rage-inducing. And I know there will be more later. Yes. Um, there will be a couple that might be as bad but i need a stick to bite down on when we do these yeah so that you don't swear because it's it's hard for me not to swear because there were a couple of times when i was writing my notes that i would type a swear and then go <laughs> no <laughs> i will read that on accident. <laughs> so yeah that was that was uh your brief history on minstrel shows tom shows and then the great African Grove Theater in Little Africa. 
Yay. As well as a guest appearance by William Henry William Henry Lane, who was who was Master Juba and created our favorite form of dance. That sounds like he was a bad dude too. Like I almost Yeah, said you something. almost said something. <laughs> you can say Bamf. He was a Bamf. He was a Bamf. So yeah. Next Next episode, we're going to be all about Ira Aldridge. I'll read you The Black Doctor, and then we'll talk about it after. And then we'll move on to other plays before we go into the black musicals. Okay. Where we actually do musical theater like this podcast is about. <laughs> these, these, are, these are the educational precursors. Yes, yes, because... A lot of these early musicals do not exist anymore, so yeah. we have to go with what I can piece together and plot lines and stuff, so next episode will be more laid back. Alright, so thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for sticking with us through this really heavy episode. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please... Leave us a review. Please tell your friends to subscribe. You can review us on Podchaser, which is a really awesome platform where you can review episodes individually. So not just the whole show, but you can like go onto this episode and say, yeah, that was really messed up. What the? Yeah. Um, or I almost swore. <laughs> oh, this is hard. <laughs> Why do you think I'm so quiet? <laughs> this is so hard. So, um, or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All of that is Tone Deaf Musical. You can check out our uh, website, ToneDeafMusical.com. Has links to all of our social media as well as the Cast Junkie Discord server, where we have our own channel, and you can come and take a look at all the awesome podcasts that you didn't know you needed. Yes, our channel is marked not safe for work because we do swear in that channel a lot. Most, um, I mean, I... Mostly Warren. I, <laughs> mostly Warren does. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's... Sometimes you need to use a swear. We just aren't using them for these episodes. <laughs> it's like our version of Candle Nights. <laughs> or our version of Sawbones. <laughs> I guess it's good to exercise restraint... Yes. Some things yes. every now and then. <laughs> so, um, if you if you want to, uh, there's a really awesome uh, Twitter user, and uh, they have created an awesome website that is just all pod podcasts made by people of color, especially Black people, uh, called Pods in Color. You can check, uh, you can check out Barry's site. Barry's the person who runs it. Uh, she's really awesome, uh, and I'm I'm gonna have a little plug at the end of all of our episodes, as you may have noticed with the first one, that just talks about an awesome black podcast that we're listening to, uh, because. It's really hard podcasting as a person of color and especially as a black person because you can't really avoid it. The main shows that get picked up are ones by white guys. So it's just how it is. Whether or not they're the better productions. Exactly. Either. So 
we since it, I just I want to boost more black shows. So and that's, I encourage it. Yes, and Warren's been having fun because we've been uh, really binging a lot of shows. We binged The Nod recently. Mm-hmm. We binge Black History Buff, uh, The Cut. I've been listening to a lot of Black Girls Do Stuff, too. I've been listening off and on to them anyway, but then I'm just going back through and going, oh! Um, Yeah, and then there's other great shows like the Bird Brain Podcast, which is hosted by Isaiah, one of our good friends. He's awesome dude. He's so awesome. He's such a great guy. And then, of course, A Ninth World Journal by David S. Deer, who I would love to have narrate my life. So... (laughs) So that's that's just sort of me gushing about shows because I can just gush forever. I am a flowing spring of love that needed to say something positive after this incredibly depressing episode. <laughs> the maelstrom of profanity swirling around in my brain is preventing me from saying some things. Yeah, as soon as we turn off the mic, Warren's just going to unleash a bunch of swears. So just so that y'all know what goes on behind the scenes. If you feel a disturbance in the force. If you feel a disturbance in the force, that's Warren just unleashing all of the anger he's been holding back. So that'll be it for today. I'm Kay. I'm Warren. This has been Tone Death.